it's any secret that I am a fan of living an adventurous life. Hello, folks. It is Shara Carruthers here. And I got to tell you, I applaud and I am inspired by those folks. And maybe you know some of these people, those folks who find the courage to live in a brave and honest way and who put as much energy as they can muster into wholeheartedly facing the challenge of figuring out what they're here to do. And my guest today is one such person. And I got to tell you, I'm so excited to share this conversation with you. His name is Deacon Carpenter, and he's a Northern California-based Ayurvedic clinician, yoga teacher, entrepreneur, author, and I will tell you more about his book on the other side. And we've been following and supporting each other on the internet for years, and so we were both quite excited to finally have the opportunity to sit down for a proper conversation. And what I discovered over the course of this conversation is that this man's life has been an adventure of epic proportions. And and there's been this interesting and defining thread that's run through his choices and his experiences and the impact that he's ultimately having on his community and on the world today. So buckle your seatbelts and settle in for a truly inspiring and enlightening chat with Deacon Carpenter. Okay. Oh my goodness. So it feels like it feels like we've been trying to make this happen for a long time. So I'm incredibly excited. <laughs> we first of all that we've actually done it. Um, and then also just to talk to you. We've just we've been kind of um, passing each other in the ether for yeah. I would say quite a few years, you know, just I've been kind of keeping up with what you've been doing and all of it has been incredibly intriguing to me as well as your story and so I was really happy when you accepted my invitation to have this conversation today. Well I think this has been a long time coming to have a chat and I'm, I'm like you I've been kind of lurking in the background seeing what you're up to and I'm so thrilled and delighted that we can finally pull this chat together. Yes. And so let's start because I really want to know your story. Like there's been, I've seen bits and pieces, but I kind of really want to dive into it and just find out a little bit about like, where have you come from and, <laughs> and, and like, how have you, how have you made it here? You're yeah. Just, yeah. Just dive in and tell me, kind of get me, get me going here. Okay. You want the long story. Okay. Yes, well. absolutely. All the juicy bits. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let me think. Um, I moved from, I was born in the UK and I moved to the US when I was 14 years old. And uh, around that time, my parents in England had a toy and sweet shop. And, uh-huh. where, were, where were you born in the UK? Uh, in Hyatt, in Southampton. Okay. Yep. Go on. You had a sweet Southwest. shop. Uh-huh. Yeah. Southwest Coast. I had a sweet shop. And of course, I was one of those fat kids that was always bullied. So I figured that the best way for me to make friends was to, you know, bring, bring them chocolate every day, which worked for about a year. Uh-huh. <laughs> then it sort of failed miserably because uh, my dad found out that I was pinching from the shop. Uh-huh. As you do as a child, you don't really know. Uh, and my mom got a job with a woman who was in a, a restoring this big yacht in America, in, in Rhode Island. Uh-huh. Um, Newport and we moved uh, to the States in 1987 and in 1988 and a half 
I was introduced to a woman who I now affectionately refer to as my stepmom. Uh-huh. And uh, she was one of the first women in, Amer- in, uh, in uh, New York City to have a health food shop in the 70s. Oh, wow. And her, I met her because her son at the time, he was seven. Uh-huh. Um, I was his babysitter. And okay. They sort of took me under their wing because I was the, you know, the fat English kid. Um, and I think when I left the UK, I was in the high 200s, 200 pounds. Uh-huh. And then at the, at the height of my weight, I was 330 pounds. Wow. Um, and yeah. what was all of this about? Was this emotional stuff? I mean, we don't have to dive into it, but do you think it was the sweets maybe, or was it just? Well, I think it was, you know, you know, it's interesting coming from England to America. I, I have absolutely no understanding of how American kids were. Yeah. Um, you know, we didn't have a lot of American television programs growing up in the UK. We had uh-huh. I think, the A-Team and Knight Rider. I wasn't sure as hell I wasn't going to show up to, a, to school in a, in a black trans am that talked to me, um, yeah. even though I wanted to. Uh, I we think, all did. <laughs> exactly. A combination of several things, actually. You know, being away from your home base where yeah. you cultivated all these friends be them because of the chocolate or not yeah and everything here is even now is so much bigger and more affordable you know we went from taking milk in pints to gallons yeah um and i just think the excess that that i experienced as a child being emotionally uh vulnerable um as a as an english person in america yeah i I think it, it it all kind of added up and um my first day at school i remember i showed up uh in, a, in my English school uniform. And you okay. know, anyone, anyone who knows about English comprehensive schools, it's very much like Hogwarts without the, with all the magic. And of course, at that point, everyone was wearing jeans and, yeah. and so, you know, wearing all the trendy stuff. And I had no, I, no idea about all of this. Oh. <laughs> I went to, we went to, my mum took me to Kmart and uh, showed up to school the next day in American streetwear. And I got ridiculed more than I did the day before. So I just oh. thought, oh, Wow. So what a, what a beautiful welcome to, um, to America, huh? Your new home. Exactly. And of course, all the kids wanted to know is how you swear in English. And I was like, well, we sort of speak the same language. <laughs> if you didn't um, happen to notice, I'm actually speaking English. <laughs> right. Exactly. Wow. So I was, I was traumatized. Yeah. And that's, that's okay. Um, and it was my stepmother who uh, told me about yoga and Ayurveda when I was 15 and a half years old. Um, she, her son, Sam, who I'm still very close with today, both of them, uh, he was uh, one of the first white babies to be born uh, at a hospital in India that was uh-huh. run by the Sai Baba Institute. Uh-huh. Um, so he's, he now has a very spiritual life. But Virginia, my stepmother, got me introduced to Ayurvedic medicine. We went to um, Maharishi's uh, clinic in Lancaster, Massachusetts in mm-hmm. 1988 where I was diagnosed with, you know, being pitta kappa with a serious kappa imbalance. Mm-hmm. Um, and for most people, most lay people don't understand that. It's basically, you've got a lot of fire and, and water and there's a lot of steam happening and you're just you're holding on to a lot of things. Did and you I, understand any of that at the time? Of course not. Not a thing. Yeah. I was like, that was interesting. Yeah. And then the next, the next stop for us was a place called Kripalu, which is not far f- in Massachusetts, not far from where, where Maharishi's clinic was. And I go to my first ever yoga class and my stepmother was hyping it all up. I was so excited. And I get in there. I'm the only guy 
within probably 15 years of all the partition, all the other uh, students in there. Yeah. And they're all slender and, and wearing their, their leotards and I'm not. Yeah. And the yoga teacher actually came up to me and she said, you know, I think this is probably not the right class for you. I think you might be too fat to do yoga. I, I didn't quite know what to make of that. So I, I sort of left yeah. half, half angry and half in tears. Um, and there was another woman who came out and she saw me, she put her hand on my shoulder. She said, you're not too fat to do anything. Let me show you what yoga is. And she was a Hatha yoga teacher from New York. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is late eighties. So still very young in the American yoga world. Yeah. And it was because of that, I was hooked. Wow. Someone was able to hold space for me when I was trying to find a way into better my health and well-being in a very unpejorative, loving and kind way. Mm. And because of that, because of my stepmother helping me figure out, my my first book on Ayurvedic medicine was written by David Frawley. Mm -hmm. I love David Frawley's work. Me too. Absolutely love it. Yeah. I mean, he's a fabulous, prolific writer. And one of our pioneers in the business, as it were. For sure. But if you're a lay person, it's completely unapproachable. Yep. <laughs> That's so, <for> sure. <laughs> so, you know, understanding Peda, Kapha, and Vata was one thing, but then trying to understand everything else that came from that was just practically impossible. Yeah. So then uh, from there, uh, I graduated from high school and got a job in New York City. So at this point, I, I have to just kind of give you a little bit of backstory. Yeah, please. I lost about half my body weight. Okay, wait, wait, wait. So how did all of this happen? Well, because of Ayurveda and yoga. Uh-huh. I, I understood that the, the clinician I was working with in Massachusetts and with my stepmother, I understood what it meant to be pitta kapha with a kapha imbalance. Yeah. I understood why my emotional eating was causing me to gain weight and have all the skin problem mm-hmm. that I was having. I, was, I had asthma, I had eczema, and I, I still suffer from eczema a little bit every now and then in the summertime, but mm. the weight started to just come up. I was being more mindful about what I was eating. I was managing my stress. I, I learned transmissive meditation when I was about uh, 16 years old. Wow. So the practice of meditation with yoga and eating mindfully really, really helped. And, you know, when you're young like that, you can essentially lose and, weight, lose and gain weight fairly easily. And for me, it was a 14-month, almost 15-month journey to losing 100 and something odd pounds. That's amazing. And how did that impact your, just the, perhaps even just the way that you felt about yourself and, and how well you were, felt that you were integrating at school? Like, how did all of that, how did it feel? I sort of felt like I was an alien from another planet. Yeah. You know, I mean just the American high school experience for me was okay. I mean, I, I still have friends that I grew up with, but for me to go through this transformation, this journey, people didn't really understand. I mean, I didn't understand. Um, I sort of felt, you know, I had my, I, I, the friends I have to today, uh, I'm still friendly where we went, to, we went to high school together, but a lot of other people, I remember my 10 year high school reunion, no one recognized me. I'm sure. <laughs> no one knew who I was, it was great. Wow. Um, but it, it was because of that that was a catalyst for me to, to think really hard about how, how, with the right approach, how easy well-being can really be. 
mm. even at a young age, for someone who you know doesn't know much about being a clinician or much about the medical institution. Yeah. I mean, you have to understand that in England, if you're overweight, the school will intervene and blame the parents for having the kids be fat. Right. So in this country, in America, it's completely different. And there's so many fad diets out there. No one knows where to start. Yep, that's for sure. And it's all about weight loss. And, you know, in my clinical work now, most of my patients don't know what it means to feel well. Mm. To me, that's just so tragic. There's people don't really even have an understanding of, like you're saying, what, it, what imbalance feels like because they've always felt like that. Right. And then you know, when they get older, people get older. Well, I just have old age. Well, yeah. The last time I checked, that isn't a medical disorder. Yeah, exactly. So after that, I, I, after losing the weight, I'm, I moved to New York City to be a, a nanny for my stepmother's friend who was uh-huh. a, social, a, social, uh, a socialite. And I wound up by actually modeling, uh, doing runway modeling for about, a year, which was very interesting. Oh my goodness. Now what now? Okay. So you've now moved from this, this place of being grossly overweight, you've healed yourself, and then you've sort of moved into this environment where there's a whole different sphere of potential uh-huh. body issues. What was that like? Um, I'm not going to swear, but it was that messed up. <laughs> you can swear. I don't <laughs> mind at all. <laughs> I mean, I, I wasn't sure if it was better in this country to be fat and happy or skinny yeah. and miserable because they certainly, society here, it, it, it's so interesting. I mean, the pressure of being too thin. I mean, I had a contract that I couldn't get above a certain weight or a waist size and we did everything we could to keep the weight off. And it was just, it was, it got to a point where I think people started to get affected emotionally. Yeah. I would see people other other models throw clothes away or or rip something so another model couldn't walk down the runway it was it was just wow. and and lots of cocaine of course because that's how you keep the weight off and sure the first time i did that i was literally up cleaning my apartment for three days with a toothbrush <laughs> <laughs> sparkling i'm sure <laughs> yeah so that was that was an interesting almost 10 months out of my life. And then I just decided it was time to go back to my roots. And I started, uh, I applied and got accepted to the university in Iowa, Maharishi University in Iowa. Mm-hmm. And um, what, wait, so let me just, let me just ask, like at the time, were you present to the dysfunction that was happening? And did you have, were you present to any impacts that it had on you? It's a very good question. Was I present to the dysfunction? I certainly didn't feel, again, I felt like I was from another planet and yeah. I, felt, I felt more intimidated if I gained weight. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly felt more pressure in gaining weight where my, my weight loss journey was that of acceptance and love and, and patience and perseverance. Yeah. This is basically, your job is to not be fat. Your right. job is to look like this. And it was... The time in, 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 in modeling where all the boys looked like girls and all the girls looked like boys, it was big androgyny in the early 90s. And, and I, just, I just got to a point where I was watching one of my friends, it was actually my roommate at the time, he, went, he came home and he was just exhausted, but he had to get up and get on a plane to go to Milan in about four hours. He just did three lines of coke in the, ba- in the bathroom, came back and then it was all fine. Wow. But you could tell that it was 
it was waning on him. And, and I just, I didn't want that life. You know, it's fun to be glamorous, but you can be glamorous in many other ways. Yeah. So I went to college in the Midwest and it was there that I met most of my dear friends that I still have today. Uh-huh. And we were one of the first undergraduate classes at that time in 1993, 1994, to learn Ayurvedic medicine at the undergraduate level. In fact, it was sort of baked into all of our activities. You know, what's interesting about going to Maharishi University when I was there is that you're expected to meditate twice a day and they took attendance for you. Um, and even if you didn't meditate, just being in, in the presence of your meditating community really kind of brought you to a whole different level. Yeah. Um, but we learned about the doshas in a very easy academic way. And, and it was because of that that I realized that I really wanted to do more with Ayurvedic medicine. And I figured, you know, at some point in my life, I would be an Ayurvedic practitioner, clinician, doctor, or whatever it was going to take. Uh-huh. But I wasn't ready to give up the glamour just yet. Right. <laughs> Wait, okay. So I want to ask a couple of questions about Maharishi University. So did you, is the program there, is it set up to have you um, graduate as an Ayurvedic practitioner or is, what's the kind of the structure of the program or what was it? Well, it was basically, it was part of our core courses um, mm-hmm. as, as fresh people. Yeah. Um, and there were some electives back then that could, that would lean you towards Maharishi Ayurveda. And, uh-huh. and Maharishi was a very interesting chap. He, he wanted Dr. Lad to be uh, on faculty um, uh-huh. to run. This was before Vasant Lad opened up the Ayurvedic, Ayurvedic Institute. Uh-huh. And he declined. So, of course, it was Deepak Chopra that, that, that fell into that role. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was doing more work on the uh, clinical side, working with the um, Lancaster Institute and working with the Raj, which is a, a, a clinical destination place in Fairfield in the same town as, as the university. Mm-hmm. Um, back then, it wasn't really set up as an elective per se. Um, yeah. Although now they have a graduate program. It's an integrative medicine program that they run from the school, which I'm part of. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's good for people who are pre-med or who are looking to roll Ayurvedic medicine into their existing practice of, of, of well-being care. That's fantastic. Yeah. Wow. And so just kind of a, on a more personal level, what, just because I've spent some time living in the Midwest, mm-hmm. and how was that transition? Going from New York City as a runway model to the middle of Iowa in the cornfields. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I landed in January, so I'm not sure if you're a Star Wars fan, but it was basically like Hoth, the planet on an Empire Strikes Back. And I, I couldn't, because I was so skinny, I, I didn't have enough subcutaneous layers of fat on me, so I couldn't get warm, which was weird for someone who's pitta. But what was ironic is that I already had um, acquaintances that were there. The founding president of Maharishi University, a guy called Keith Wallace, uh-huh. Um, his mom and I used to meditate together in Newport mm-hmm. and Keith has written many, many books, um, is a PhD and he's a mentor and a dear friend. He and his wife, Samantha, and I have, have been friends for a long time. And I met him and, uh, when I first got to university and then his daughter, Leela, who now lives uh, here in Northern California and his two sons, Gareth and Ted and I became really, really close, really quickly. Um, 
And all the best friends that I have now were from that time in my life, which was amazing. And it was weird that you had to get up and, and go meditate in the very beginning of the morning and then towards the end of the day and the traffic jam to get to the golden domes for the meditators who were doing the Siddha program was weird. And the townies didn't really care for the ruse, which was short for gurus. And it it was, it was considered, you know, taboo to go to the local bar, which was called the barnstormer to go and get a drink. If you were in the Maharishi university, it was really, it was such a weird dichotomy of things. I remember uh, my friend uh, Arthur was really upset that the food they were serving at the uh, at the canteen was pretty awful. So we went to McDonald's and came back and ate. I think he had a Big Mac and I had some chicken nuggets or something at that point. And everyone was just horrified. <laughs> I mean, not to be, not to be rude, but just to kind of wake people up a little bit. It was, yeah, the transition was was wasn't easy, but it wasn't difficult. Right. Yeah. It sounds like that's something that you kind of were used to in some ways, just kind of being, uh, being, a, somebody who, do, who was in a, a space that wasn't entirely familiar, but being able to assimilate. Yes, exactly. And yeah. when you're with a group of like-minded individuals, it's a lot easier. Yeah. I can imagine. Okay. So from there, you were saying you were not done with the glitz and glamour. No. So I decided I wanted to go back to the, go back to New York in one way, shape or form. Uh-huh. And after college, I got hooked up with my friend Alex's parents who had a, an antiques and interior design gallery in Greenwich, Connecticut. Uh-huh. And it turned out to be a great stepping stone into advertising. Um, in 1990, what was it? 1996, I think it was 1997. Um, I started working for a guy in Westchester County, which is between Connecticut and Northern New York City, uh-huh. building websites. And I would be building websites for interior designers and antiques dealers. And it was, it was fun, but it was kind of boring work. Um, yeah. And then in 1998, I wound up by joining a, a startup in the dot-com oh. called Interactive 8. Uh-huh. And then it all Was that off. in New York? It was in New York City, yeah. Yep. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. So I was part of the dot-com boom and the dot-com bust. Yeah, I was in New York at that time too. I moved there in 1999 and left in 2006. And yeah, I was in computers and all that at that time as well. It was crazy. Wasn't it crazy? Ugh. People don't realize it was basically like uh, Versailles all over again. Totally. (laughs) Just crazy things everywhere. I just, yeah, that was, I, you know, but I'm often thankful about having the opportunity to be there at that time. Because yeah. it was just an amazing experience. What was what was your experience of it? Well, uh, there's actually there's a book written in 2001, I think it was, by an author called Laurie Gottlieb. And uh-huh. Laurie was her, the book was called Inside the Cult of Kibu, which was an early dot com. And she interviewed, I think, 15 or 20 people that worked across the the Americas, across the across Northern America, uh-huh. uh, in Silicon Valley which of course is here in Northern California and Silicon Alley, which was referred to where all the dot-coms were starting in New York city. Mm-hmm. And I relate, I, she interviewed me for the book and, and every now and then I go back and read it cause it's, I chuckle and I'm horrified at the same time, but <laughs> um, it was a very hedonistic time, you know? And, Definitely. and so then I, from there I went and worked for Digitas, which uh-huh. was a Boston based firm. And then the, the, the bust happened and I went and freelanced for Deutsch and working for Deutsch was my first 
foray into pharmaceutical advertising. Hmm. And it was right around the time that uh, Pfizer was looking to explore COX-2 inhibitors, uh-huh. painkillers. And I remember working day and night, and I think I rounded two days and two nights by being there to get this product out the door. Um, and it was a program called Valdine, uh, which never made it. But what people don't realize is when, when uh, a drug has gone through their internal trials before it's submitted to uh, clinical trials for the FDA to approve, they've already engaged a naming agency and an advertising firm to name and market the product. Mm-hmm. And they can spend up to, you know, five to six, maybe sometimes $10 million on if they're getting media involved, just so that when the FDA gives them the thumbs up, they can push a button and it goes into media. And this was such a weird phenomenon for me because I, you know, human beings, we justify bad behavior anyway. Yeah. And here I am justifying the fact that I, you know, don't believe in pharmaceutical advertising direct to consumer where America is the only one of the only two countries in the world where that's legal to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm putting myself through hell to get this project out because I want to get paid. I want to get paid for the time. Yeah. And I remember driving up to my family's house in Rhode Island after being up for two days and I was on the phone my, there was a car phone and, you know, back in the day when you had a car phone and it was like a dollar a minute. <laughs> and I called in and they said, well, we've decided, you know, the FDA hasn't uh, approved this drug. So we're going to repurpose our money into something else. And it was almost like that was a, a, a light switch for them. It was so easy just to ref- to funnel money into another account. Yeah. So from there, um, I, we had September 11th shortly after that. Mm. And I moved out of New York city to be with my family for six months and was that right after? Were you in New York on September 11th? I was, I was living in New York City. I was actually visiting my best friend who was living in Iowa, in Fairfield at the time. And my uh-huh. husband was on business uh, in Ohio. And I was actually able to fly back on the 12th. Oh, but, wow. That's yeah. lucky because I, I was in town. I was, we were living in Brooklyn at the time. Okay. And um, my husband was, in, was on business in, in Dallas and he couldn't get back until I think it was September 11th was a Tuesday. I don't think he could get back until the following Monday or Tuesday. And he'd gone to Dallas for like a one, you know, one day meeting and had like a pair of underwear and a, and a, you know, a change of a shirt or something and kind of ended up in a hotel room watching the towers coming down for basically a whole week. Remember how they just played that over and over again? Yeah, I, did. I, I, I felt like I was watching like a Bruce Willis movie when I saw yeah. that. Yeah. And then at that point you were living in, living in Brooklyn. I was living on the lower East side. So mm-hmm. they shut everything. The city shut everything down below. It was, I think it started at 23rd street. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they, you know, after a week it was, it was 14th street and then further down. So I couldn't get into my apartment for two weeks. Oh, wow. wow. So I was really, I get into the apartment. Everything's covered in a thick layer of dust. Um, yeah. I, I just kind of had a bit of a meltdown and then moved back to Rhode Island for six months. And then after that, I moved back. I was there for six months, moved back down into Connecticut to help friends of mine with a business. And I was still, you know, still on the fence about what, what to do next. You know, mm-hmm. I still wanted to have a big career. Yeah. Um, so I wound up by getting a job at Wonderman, which was part of Young and Rubicam. Uh-huh. And I was pro- program management there working on a lot of integrative accounts, which included, again, Pfizer, 
AT&T Wireless. Um, and then I had another uh, little thing happen with Pfizer where Pfizer and the agency decided to create this program called PFL or Pfizer for Living. And it was an advocacy program, which is quite forward thinking. This is now 2003. Mm-hmm. Um, quite forward thinking for Pfizer because what they wanted to do was, this was right around the time that um, Vioxx, I believe, was, was really detrimental for people who have heart problems. And we created this program called Pfizer for Living, which was an advocacy program for people who had high blood pressure, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, and there was a control group. And each of these verticals had 750,000 patients who were on a Pfizer pharmaceutical. Wow. And each month, we would send an email and uh, a packet in the mail to them, basically saying, here's what you can expect in this month's PFL packet, which was recipes and exercise programs and yoga programs and coupons to buy better food. Wow. Very forward thinking. Yeah. But unfortunately, very, not very lucrative for Pfizer. Mm. Um, I still have a creative brief <laughs> sitting on my hard drive. Heartbreaking. <laughs> it was, I mean, but I mean, I, I, I understand, I understand how it works. I understand that you need to have, in order to make a, make a little dent with, with philanthropy, you've got to make a big dent with your commerce. I get that. But the, they pulled the plug. Pfizer pulled the plug on that program. And they said, look, we, 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 we want to focus on another painkiller market because of what's happened with, with Vioxx. And, you know, I spoke to my client afterwards and my client said, look, we were losing money at, at a rate of 30% and we couldn't have that. Wow. That meant that 30% of 750,000 people times five were actually coming off of their meds. Wow. Couldn't have that. No. And I just, at that point, you know, I'm of course at this point I'm too, I'm into my second gin martini. Thank you very much. <laughs> And it was as as if I sobered up automatically. Wow. Holy crap. I am part of the problem here. Yeah. I am part of this big mechanical institution who doesn't care about my opinion. They just want me to do the work and get it done on time on budget. Yeah. But it's a detriment. I mean, I'm not poo-pooing Western medicine. Sure. At all. But this is not the way forward. No. And then right after that, I got a phone call from, I call her my wife, my, my friend Peggy, who lives in Boston. Uh-huh. Her, her brother, I think, if he's not retired, still is a lieutenant colonel in the 1st Infantry Division of the U.S. Army. Uh-huh. And he wanted to have a conversation with me. Um, and I said, okay, well, I'll have a chat with him, but I can't meet with him because my agency has army as a client and it might be considered... Um, might be considered inappropriate. Mm-hmm. So he had a chat with me and I, we got a little bit of security clearance and my friend Tom and I, Tom was living in Tribeca um, and lived in Tribeca for many years after September 11th. Um, uh, Peggy's brother, Robert met me at my friend Tom's apartment in Tribeca <laughs> and it's 8:30 in the morning. And we, we were sitting down with two majors and, and, and the Lieutenant Colonel with these decks in front of us, these PowerPoint presentations, and they all represent psychological um, operations and information operations. Mm-hmm. Basically, they're the, they're the people who help um, 
boots on the ground, engage with foreign nationals during wartime and conflict. We sat down and the first thing they said was, well, the reason we're losing the war in Iraq is because we don't know how to engage with the Iraqi foreign nationals. Wow. Um, and at that point, all the money that was being used, traditionally being used, and if you go back through war times, even the Second World War, um, the American government, uh, was, which was funded by the State Department, would give the Foreign Service money to print these little booklets up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember that my, my friend who's English, who lives here in town with me, um, her daughter found this book for American GIs uh, going to England uh-huh. for the Second World War. And it was very sweet and very proper and how the English and Americans are same but different. It was really funny. Uh-huh. But in, you know, in 2006, 2007, it meant collateral, human collateral. People were dying because the Foreign Service was no, no longer being funded by the State Department because all the money was being put into the war machine, all the, the, you know, the ammunition and all the, all the tanks and, and all of that. Uh-huh. And the first thing they said to us was the reason we're losing the war in Iraq is because we don't know how to engage with Iraqis. And it was mind-blowing to us. Wow. So we went through all of their literature. We went through how they engage with Iraqis, mostly with unmarked drones. And it was, you know, it's basic so- stuff. When you say engage, do you mean with civilians or do you mean with the, with the military there? Like, you know, the American military or, or the, I don't know, I don't necessarily want to say Western or allies, but um, was it mil- on a military level or was it military with civilians? It was U.S. military with civilians. With okay. Civilians. Wow. What, we, what, we, what the U.S. was doing at that point was trying to win a war and, you know, take down Saddam Hussein and, yeah. and, and, and his regime. Mm. And I'm not going to get into any conspiracy theories. I'm just sure. explaining my experience here. Yeah, sure. And at the most rudimentary level, when you've got U.S. troops who have absolutely no concept of how Iraqis live, you know, if you've got troops who are 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, yeah. they don't have the fundamental education to know that if you put your hand up to an Iraqi, like your, your palm is facing them, you're basically giving them the finger. Right. And if an Iraqi approaches you to kiss you, not like you would with your husband or your spouse, but, you know, as the French do, they, that, that, that's how they greet. Mm-hmm. They're not trying to have sex with you. They're just trying to meet you where you're at. Yeah. So, so part of our job was to, because they were looking at branding and advertising industries to help them figure out how to really sell, I don't want to say sell democracy, but, you know, sell their presence there we wound up by going to Fort Leavenworth and going up against the joint, not the joint chiefs, but uh, about against Rand and Dar, who do computational science. Mm-hmm. And we basically said, guys, look, all you need to do is have a style guide. This is how you engage with Iraqis on one page. You flip it over. Here's how you do not engage with Iraqis. And there was an article in the New York Times about eight or nine weeks later that, that talked about how one of the units in the military were using this, this idea of ours mm-hmm. um, to prevent death to prevent wow. human collateral and both tom and i got a letter from general wallace thanking us and letting us know that they've had a significant drop in in human collateral that's amazing well it would be more amazing if we got paid for it but anyway this was our way of giving back to you know using our industry as preventive care using yeah. our industry to help prevent americans getting hurt getting harmed yeah which was very interesting. And it was, a, it was a, small, a small contribution to, to what the men and women of our militaries sacrificed, but it was something. 
nonetheless. Wow. It's amazing to me because I think that it, what, what it kind of points to in my mind is the fact that we always see things at a certain level. You know, even just the same thing, I'm seeing kind of a thread through the things that you're talking about. We see things in, in a certain way and a solution looks like this, but really what we're missing is kind of the human component to things. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, this is the situation that, that I deal with with my patients now. I mean, yeah. I just, I've had, I've, we've been really busy, which has been fantastic, but a lot of my new patients have issues that their doctors simply don't have time to give them. Yeah. They'll just write a script and say, we'll see if this sticks. And yeah. it's not the doctor's fault because the doctor, when, you, when a physician goes through medical school, they learn so much. Yeah. And then when they come out of medical school, they go into their internship and their residency, they are taught bureaucracy. They are yeah. now in a healthcare system that you have got five minutes per patient that you can't get too emotionally involved with people. Mm. I mean, my, our physician here in Santa Rosa, you know, I waited to see him for 45 minutes, my last visit, but he was with me for 35 minutes. And that's unheard of in primary care. Yeah. Um, my, my partner, Ginger Schechter here, who's a, who's a Western internist, uh -huh. she was the medical director of the Santa Rosa VA for almost eight years. Uh -huh. And, they give their, their doc, doctors are allowed 30 minutes with their patients, but their patients are uh, soldiers who are coming back from, from combat. Wow. So they have PTSD and, you know, the doctors have prescribed them, and I'm not joking, up to 45 medications for them. Ugh. So the system is flawed. Very. And unlike in England, where we always think about preventive care and direct-to-consumer yeah. pharmaceutical advertising is illegal. Mm. We don't think about that. And the other thing is, is that we have a, especially in the US, I'm not sure what it's like in Australia, but in the US, we have this us versus them mentality. Mm. You know, Western doctors think people like you and I are complete quacks. Yeah. And a lot of people who do what you and I do think that the Western medical profession is Satanism. Mm. We've got to meet each other in the middle in order yeah. for us to save our patients from from escalating drug and medical costs and from frustration of trying to figure out what the heck is going on in their bodies. I don't have the diagnostic tools that a Western doctor has, yeah. but a Western doctor has doesn't, a Western doctor doesn't have the, the, the people skills generally that I do when I meet with my patients for the first time for two hours. Yeah. We've got to strike that balance. Absolutely. And so, okay, so how did you get from, how did, how did you get from where, from New York and all the rest of it to where you are now? I love this beautiful winding story. And I'm, it's really interesting to see all the seeds, I suppose, sort of being planted along the way. Yeah. What's interesting, right then, I, 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 I when I left, I went and worked for, uh, after, after, uh, Young and Rubicam, I went to work for uh, IPG, which was McCann Erickson. And this was my big career. This was me traveling the world and managing Intel, the chip processing company. And I, mm -hmm. I managed a team of upwards of 150, 250 people. It was, it was everything that was, I mean, this was great for me. I was so excited about all of this, but it never panned out that way. I had very few resources in the US and basically was living on a plane and, you know, I would go to Sao Paulo to be with my team there, then come back and jump on a plane to go to Hong Kong and then come back for four hours and then jump on a plane to go to London. Ugh. It was terrifying. I was working, and it's funny because you're saying all these threads that are coming through. 
my average work week was 108 hours. Oh, oh my goodness. And so what impact did that have on your health, on your well-being? Um, I remember one time I was, I took a, I finally was able to get to a yoga class. My friend Sarah Bell, who uh, used to work for Yoga Works in New York, her, her, the studio that she was working at was next door to my last job before it being ejected from, from the, the industry. And I'll explain that. Yeah. I take a, I take a wonderful yoga class from her and I'm downstairs waiting for her to come down. She was talking with some of her, some of her students and I reach into my pocket and I pull out an American spirit cigarette and I light it and I'm smoking on the street. And she looks at me and she's walking through the door with this look of horror on her face. And she said, what the hell are you doing? And I, I looked at it and I said, oh, don't worry, it's organic. <laughs> and I'm like, such an asshole. You are such a bonehead. And, she's, and she, but I put it on the street and she smiled and nodded. And that was when I quit smoking. Yeah. <laughs> but that was how I was coping. I mean, I, I, I wasn't able to eat properly. I was barely able to do yoga. I gained weight back. I probably gained maybe 40 pounds in the one year that I was working for, for, um, for uh, Intel. Yeah. And it just so happened that the universe had other plans for me. So I left working there. In fact, it was kind of a mutual decision to fire me and I resigned because I just couldn't handle it any longer. Yeah. And my former boss from Wonderman invited me to go work for him in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And I was working on a project there for him for a year. And then I decided that after my year there, I moved back to New York and got a job with Interbrand where I was the director of their program management position. Mm-hmm. And that was fine. I mean, I certainly learned a lot. But my boss at the time, a woman called Kelly Gall, um, was, she was the COO of North America. So you've got this, this, this really incredibly intelligent woman who was basically, you know, saying F you to, to the patriarchy by just doing a really good job of doing what she did the best. Uh-huh. And uh, she got sick. Um, and, I, and I had gone back to school at that point. This was in 2007 and a half, 2008. Mm-hmm. I went back to school to get my certification as a clinician. And she was sick, so I gave her a little, just of what I knew in my undergraduate work. Um, well, take this and do that and do this. And she came back three days later looking and feeling better than she had in a long time. Wow. And I said, wow, Kelly, you look great. She's like, you, thank you. And you're fired. I was like, what? She said, yeah, you're wasting your talents here. Go and do what you need to do. And that ejection from my very large six-figure salary was such a crush to my ego. I was angry for probably three years. It, wow. It put me through my clinical work. Um, and we, I got married. What, what saved me, I think, was my marriage. I got married to my husband in 2009. Uh-huh. And then we moved to California in 2010 because he recareered and was working at a wine shop in Tribeca as their general manager. Uh-huh. And I think we just got fed up with the grind of New York. It wasn't the same city we fell in love with in our 20s. Yeah. And we moved, we moved to the West Coast in March of 2010. I'd finished my clinical, life, my, my clinical work and I was embarking on my internship and my residency. Uh-huh. And we thought this was the greatest adventure. We packed up, we sold our flat in New York City. We moved to Brooklyn for a year, which I did not love. I have to be honest with you. I mean, kudos to friends of mine who live in Brooklyn, but. <laughs> Where were you in Brooklyn? I, I just, I don't know. It's just, I felt like if I was getting on a train to get yeah. to the city, 
You may as well live in Connecticut. <laughs> I know it's awful. I mean, I, I really did friend Garrett Oliver, who I is is basically like a brother to us. Uh-huh. Was living around the corner from us, and and it was wonderful being a neighbor. But I just didn't love Brooklyn. Ah, oh. oh well, it's not for everyone, I suppose. I say the same thing about New York City. So it's, yeah. It's, um. So when we moved out here, I started, when, before I left uh, New York, I was working for Lululemon. Uh-huh. And um, I wound up by getting a job at the Lululemon in Marin, which is about, I guess, maybe an hour drive from where we were living in Sonoma County. Mm-hmm. And um, it was one of the most humbling and wonderful experiences of my life because I got to be a, the, the director of first impressions, which is, is so <laughs> You know, both your director of first impressions, you're the greeter, and you're like, hi. And one of my clients walked into Lululemon when I was working in Soho, and she mm-hmm. said to me, are you okay? I understood you had a mental breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> and it was so humbling. And I felt at that point, I felt like, okay, everything I'm doing, I'm on the right track. I'm out of the rat race officially, and now I can open up different opportunities. Wow. And it was when I was working in uh, the Marin outlet, um, we had uh, this, Lululemon had a van called Van. Mm -hmm. We would load up and drive all over the Bay Area to be at events. And I was part of the coordinating team. And I met some really interesting people here who are health crusaders. And it was right around the time I was developing, I needed to find a way for people to learn about Ayurvedic medicine in a very easy, non-pejorative way. Yeah. And I wasn't ready to write a book at that point. Mm-hmm. And all the cookbooks that were out there, I mean, Amadea Morningstar is a fabulous writer. Yeah. People in this country just have an aversion to cooking. So I thought, I'll make the world's first Ayurvedic nutrition bar. Mm. And we call them Veda bars. And the first, one of the first test people to try the bar mm-hmm. was my friend Nan, who Nan Foster now lives in Marin. She and her husband have lived in California for I guess, 25 years, but originally both from New York. Uh-huh. She's a health coach that just wrote a book called Gutsy. And uh-huh. her is a, uh, one of the top breast reconstructive surgeons in uh, California at UCSF. So when women have to have reconstructive surgery after a mastectomy, he's the guy. Uh-huh. And we became fast friends and she, her career has just blossomed. And it was because of my friendship with her that I designed, designed these nutrition bars. And we were in, so my best friend, Eric and I, Eric and I uh, went to college together at Mars University, uh-huh. we created this product. We had a Vata bar, we had a Pitta bar and a Kappa bar. And um, the, the Vata bar had uh, dehydrated beets and yams in them. And the mm-hmm. Pitta bar had turmeric and ginger in it. And the Kappa bar wasn't made of oats. It was made of quinoa. Uh-huh. We were in every single yoga works on the East and West Coast. And we were really sought after brand until we ran out of money. Oh. <laughs> and that was okay, but I, I felt like this people were ready to have a conversation around Ayurveda. Yeah. And wait, okay, so what year was this now? The Veda bars happened in 2012. 2012, okay. And, and what was that process of like of putting together this nutritional these nutritional bars? Like you sort of, you know, you sort of skate over it, but it sounds like it could be a pretty involved process. Well, I go well, yes, but I think I, I sort of take a look at the beginning of beginning of the process and, and really focus on that and what the cadence and ripple effect is from there. So yeah, sure. problem, people don't know what Ayurveda is. They don't know how to pronounce it. They think 
it's about eating curries or it's some esoteric um, quackery, not realizing that it's the first medical system known to man, which influenced every medical practice in the world. Yeah. Um, yes, it was cognized by Hindus, but anyway, it's good for everybody. Yeah. So how do I get that message across? Think of this as my creative process when writing a brief, a creative brief for one of my big advertising clients. Yeah. They've got a product or they've got a service they'd like to sell to consumers. How do you do it in a very easily digestible way? So I started to come up with cookies. I started with granola, then I started with cookies, then I did cookies. And then I started to go a little bit further into the process by mixing and matching fruits and vegetables and working where we live in Sonoma County. We have a year-round growing season. Mm -hmm. So I was able to reach out to uh, a local food purveyor who provided me with the beets and the yams. And I found a dehydrator, which, and I played around with all of that. So it was a good year of development uh -huh. and, you know, a lot of, a lot of tasting, a lot of testing, a lot of investment in finances. And I finally got a chef to help me with the final, the final cut for the bars. Yeah. And it was as if every time it was such backbreaking work, Chara, you, you can't imagine. I mean, I, my hat's off to any chef or caterer when you have to cook for more than four people. Yeah. Um, it was backbreaking work, but at the end of it, when they were cut and packaged and boxed, you almost felt like you just had a, another child and that yeah. just made you so proud. And it was just so wonderful. Yeah. Um, and even the execution was so thought out. I mean, we didn't have flavor profiles on the front of the packages. It was eat me if you're feeling, which yeah. is of course, Ayurveda. You, you were emotional eaters. Love it. So I think, the Vata Bas said, eat me if you're feeling spacey or ungrounded. The Pitta uh -huh. said, eat me if you're feeling hangry. <laughs> and the, the, the Kappa Bas said, eat me if you're feeling down or depressed or lethargic. It was lethargic. Uh -huh. And all the ingredients, like the, the Vata Bar just had almonds, um, beets and yams. Uh, mm -hmm. The Pitta Bar had the kitchen sink. So we had ginger and turmeric and coconut. And we had pumpkin seeds and sunflower seeds and dates mm -hmm. and raisins. So it was really substantial. Yum. And then the, the kappa bar was puffed amaranth and it had um, cinnamon and ginger. So great for blood sugar uh, uh, recalibration. Yeah. And we did really well. In fact, um, my husband, who's from, uh, from Louisiana, he grew up in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. um, his dad plays golf with, this is, I love how the world is connected, but uh, <laughs> his father plays golf with a guy called John Elstrot, who was at the time the chairman of the board of Whole Foods. Oh, wow. And they got me a meeting with him. Uh -huh. and he shows up late because I'm just doing this as a favor to your father-in-law. And he's got a handful of cookies because he just came off the golf cream. Uh -huh. <laughs> Before I even met him, I said, John, I haven't met, but can I give you one of my bars instead of those cookies? Just since you're hungry. Yeah. And he ate through three of them in, in one sitting. And, and I think my father-in-law and uh, the other guy that we were there with, um, Hank, who's one of, one of uh, my father-in-law's friends, Mm -hmm. They thought it would be a 45 minute meeting at the most. We were there for almost two hours talking about this. Wow. And I said to him, John, what, what's different about what we do, it's a lifestyle. Yeah. It's, not a, it's not a product. It's not something that you just, it can be grab and go, but we're educating people on a whole lifestyle around yoga and Ayurveda. Yeah. And he said, I wouldn't put you, these were some really interesting words of wisdom for him. He said, if you were to come to Whole Foods with your scaled product right now, 
you wouldn't be put into the nutrition bar section. You'd be put in a whole body. And the employees there would be educated on what's different about this product versus everything out there. He said, this is a game changer. Wow. It was pretty cool. Um, but we didn't, because again, we ran out of money and, yeah. and that was challenging. Um, so then I bought a yoga studio in 2015. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, so did you just shelve it or what happened? Did you just say, look, it'll find its time or? Yeah. I felt like it was maybe too, too advanced. In fact, we've had, some, we've had some nibbles now from investors who love the product and we may move forward with it. But, you know, I know how difficult it is to create a food product in this country and to make yes. it. We were using ancient organics ghee, which is made in, made in Berkeley, and they chant when the moon is waxing over it. So it's fabulous. That's wonderful. But with consumer packaged goods, you've got to toe a line of profit margins. And yeah. So maybe it'll pick up again. I don't know. Maybe not. People love it. They ask me when it's coming out. Yes. Um, we'll see. But then I bought Yoga One in uh -huh. 2015 with the intention of creating a well-being center. Yeah. Um, you know, at that point, Ginger, my, my partner, uh, who's a Western doctor, she's an internist, we were sort of working together. I had two yoga studios, one here in town in Santa Rosa, one in Petaluma, which is about 25 minutes south of here. And it was a really interesting, um, really interesting experiment in community. Mm -hmm. um, the former owner, when he left, there was some challenges and we did everything we could to evolve the brand forward a little bit. And I mean, nothing too terrible, but, you know, buying a business and, and making it lucrative again was, it's taken us almost three years, three and a half years. Wow. But, and I, I remember seeing, I don't, I remember seeing some stuff on Facebook when all the crazy fires were happening in up in the Northern California. Did you guys, were you really adversely impacted by that or did it? Yeah. What was the impact? Well, it was, there was actually a very deep impact. We, we just moved out of our old location. We just moved into our new location. We um, where we have our full on integrative medical center now with wow. a naturopath and a, an, a, an acupuncturist and doctor of Chinese medicine, skincare, body care, yoga therapy, all of that. Yeah. This was the vision I had, and we moved in in February of 2017. Mm -hmm. And the fires happened in October of 2017. And what was interesting is that morning, I was out with friends that night, and it was very, very windy and, and, and more windy than I've ever seen living out here. Yeah. The next morning we woke up, and it looked like at 9 o'clock in the morning, or 7.30 at that point, it looked like 4 o'clock in the afternoon because there was so much smoke in the air. And cable was down. Um, if you had, if you were a Verizon subscriber, your phone wasn't working. Only AT and T was working. And I, we live in a small town just north of Santa Rosa called Healdsburg. So it's the end of the season. You've got tourists who are milling around. No one knows what's going on. And the smoke was so acrid. It smelled like New York City smelled like after the Twin Towers came down. Hmm. So of course I'm go, I go right into fight or flight. I get in my car, I drive to the gas station, put, fill up the tank. My yeah. husband follows me. Um, we go into town to a local coffee shop and people are milling around like, what is going on? We can't, we don't know. Um, there are people who are visiting that we, we had our phones. We let them use our phones to call back to their family to make sure they're okay. And about 
two o'clock, three o'clock that afternoon, we decided to uh, evacuate because we, there were fires burning north of us in a town called Geyserville. Uh-huh. And Santa Rosa and uh, Sonoma, part of Sonoma were on fire. So we just needed to get out. We, we went out to the coast to, um, to Sea Ranch, which is a, a, a great little um, resort, but not really resort town in Sonoma County, mm-hmm. right on the Pacific. And we were with four of our friends and, you know, basically Jim and I packed up all the stuff that was valuable and drove one car out to the coast, hoping to God that the fire didn't consume anything else. Um, The following day I got back in the car and I drove back into town just to kind of assess the damage. And um, obviously the places that were burned, you couldn't get into, but downtown was fine. Yeah. And my general manager at the time, they weren't sure if they were going to lose their house, which mercifully they didn't she and her roommate stayed at the center here. Um, and because of that, a week for the next following two or three weeks, we just opened the studio and the center up for people who just needed help. We, you know, if they, if they needed food or shelter, if they needed to take a yoga class or see a, a practitioner, we just gave it away to the community as much as we could. Wow. Uh, and then because of that, there was a, a woman a psychologist, Hannah, and I've forgotten her last name, but she created this yoga program called Trauma Informed Yoga, which a lot of yoga teachers in Sonoma County have taken from her. Um, and people are still dealing with that. Yeah. Um, yeah I wondered like- about that, actually. I wondered about, especially having had the experience of September 11th and just the energy in New York City after that, that experience of that feeling of um, kind of this mass experience of trauma. And I wondered like, are, are you, are you all seeing people now that are still that you feel or you, that you suspect are kind of dealing with consciously or subconsciously with the trauma from that experience? Without question. And yeah. what's interesting is that you're right. After September 11th, I kind of felt there was, there were, there were two mind thought, mindsets. One was people were more open to helping other people and some other people were a bit more dubious about what was going on. I mean, this was a, this was a beautifully mastered uh, terrorist attack on the US. I mean, it was, it was executed flawlessly. Mm. Caught us all off guard and we started to realize that, wow, we are that. I don't want to use the word vulnerable because I, I usually use that as a, as, a, as a superpower, but we are. We are at risk, you know? I see it mostly on the highway up here in, uh, in Northern California. I see people with a lot of road rage. I see people huh. not really, really interacting with each other at farmer's markets or at grocery store like I used to. Yeah. Um, you know, if I go shopping and I see a friend or a colleague or, or a patient, I'll go up and say hello. And you, they have to take a minute to, to kind of remember who you are. Mm. Um, just because the, the road back has been challenging, not, for the, not particularly for the fact that, you know, our infrastructure is back in place, but, you know, my, my colleague and dear friend, Tracy uh, Rodriguez, who's from South Africa, she went through our teacher training before the fire. Mm-hmm. She lost her home. I mean, she's a mom of five children. Wow. And she's, she lost her home and she moved back to South Africa. And uh, recently, really tragically, her eldest son was killed in a biking accident uh, in Berkeley. And we saw her and she just, 
she just draws such such strength from her community. That's who she is as a person. Yeah. And I think that's that's really lacking after the fires. I mean, people are still shell shocked um, about loss of friends and family and homes and 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 belongings. It's really quite palpable here still. Wow. Yeah. And so, so go on, go on. <laughs> well, that was I, what I was what I was going to say. Is that that's where the the evolution of Yoga One and Well Sonoma come together. Okay. Um, now what we're doing is a lot more community outreach. We have a much bigger so- focus on social justice in our communities for people who need services but are ill. Uh, they can they can ill afford it. Uh huh. We one of our biggest underserved community members under, members of our community are the Hispanic and Latino community, um, and we've just recently started yoga in Spanish with uh-huh. one of our and and it's bringing more diverse community members into the conversation of what does it feel like to feel well and how can you access services if you are not able to afford them generally speaking mm-hmm. um, and I'm seeing you know with our yoga programs for example I'm seeing more people come back to the mat to find community and from there they're finding Dr. Kimberly, who's a naturopath, or Dr. Orell, who's our acupuncturist and Chinese medical doctor, or they're finding Ryan, who does massage therapy, or Shane, who does yoga therapy. It's, it's all this, this outpouring for the community because they see that we're a community, and you know, they'll see their doctor in a yoga class, or they'll see their massage therapist in a workshop. It's, it's really wonderful, and what we are doing is really trying to rebuild the community through the work that we're doing in sort of independently and also together. It sounds fantastic. It really does. It's, oh my goodness. I'm so heartened to hear this, to hear this story because I'm sort of, you know, I'm, I'm really strongly of the belief and I imagine you probably agree that that just that, that aspect of community, that aspect of Sangha, that, that is, that's an, an importantly vital piece which is missing for so, so many people, just of our health and wellness, just of our self-worth, our self-value, all of it. Um, and all of those things are just, you know, at the, they're, they're at the very center of just feeling good, you know, and being able to contribute. And you're seeing it so, so rarely around the world. Um, and so I really love that you're creating that. Well, we have to. I mean, in my humble, in my not so humble opinion, community is part of your therapy. Yes. Whether you go to church or synagogue, or yep. if you go to a mosque, you are, or even a yoga studio, you are part of your community. Yeah. You know, it's so important that we provide when we hold space for people, we hold space for all people. We yeah. hold space for people who are going through stuff. That's why every single room in our center has at least two boxes of tissues. Yeah. Must be, um, but I, I think there was a study that just came out about mm-hmm. how people are lonely. Yep. and a lot of it is through social media. When you look at social media, the, I have a love-hate relationship with with Facebook and Instagram. Same. I love how it's brought you and I together on two different continents, two different yeah. countries, two different worlds. Yeah. Yet it's divisive in the way that you know I've now written this book and I'm excited and terrified for putting myself out there because maybe there's someone out there who does what you and I do and they are very hypercritical of the fact that I've done this. Mm. Or, you know, you, my favorite expression is people who gaslight, for example, when yeah. they're gaslighting other people to make them think that they're crazy. 
and that's your community. Your community is all online. You don't have people to be with. Yeah. So, you know, as much as I love seeing Gaim videos and, and yoga teachers doing stuff online, the connection to the community is so important to everything. It's to, to human existence. We've got to have that community aspect. Yeah. I've been, I've been having conversations and hearing this more. And I think that we, you know, there was a lot of initial excitement around, you know, the internet and its promise and around, you know, our ability to kind of sit in our rooms and kind of watch the world, um, you know, without having to do too much. But I think that just like you're saying, you know, we're starting to recognize the, the impacts. And I think people are perhaps starting to think a little bit about uh, what we can actually do to, to fix it. Right. If well, anything at all. It's a big, it's a big fix. It is. It's huge. We're addicted. <laughs> we are, but also, you know, for people like I'm, I'm gay and, and for, for some people in some parts of the world, that's not okay. So, you know, finding a community online is great and having a community of like-minded individuals who you can actually have physical contact with and have a conversation and, and sit across the table from is very important. I mean, so much is lost in, I mean, I would love to actually have this conversation with you in front of me. I think that'd be fabulous. Me too. <laughs> but, you know, this is the best we can do. Yeah. Um, and there's so much that's lost when you're not speaking with someone in front of you. There's body language and, and you know, when someone lights up, when you mention to them, oh my gosh, that's happened to me as well. And yeah. you know, now you're starting with, with that conversation, you're starting to find similarities and, yeah. and common goals and community. It's, it's so important. Yeah. There's an energy to it that kind of fuels not just the people in the space that kind of fuels, you know, I think it kind of fuels the world, really. That energetic, energetic exchange between two people who found some, something that they can kind of both put their arms around, if you know what I mean. I absolutely. And the expression in Ayurveda is, as is macrocosm, so is microcosm. Yeah. So if you have that energy and people around you are seeing that energy, they'll take that out into the community be it yeah. positive or negative. So. And so I want to know about this book that you've written. It hasn't, at the time of this conversation, it hasn't, it hasn't been launched or released yet. Is that correct? It's actually available for pre-sale. Okay, yep. You, you can, you can pre-buy it uh, yep. on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or anywhere where, where decent books are sold. Yeah. <laughs> but this, again, goes back to my, my marketing days, you know, yeah. I've always wanted to write a book. In fact, Barnes & Noble approached us in um, August of last year. And uh, my friend John, who I was talking with at the time, they wanted to have a book that was kind of written by a physician, but has an Ayurvedic uh, bent to it, which has been done. So I said, well, why don't we have a book that's written by an Ayurvedic clinician, a Chinese medical doctor, and a Western doctor? And we can talk about health and well-being programs based on different modalities. Mm -hmm. And they said, great. And it went all the way up to the upper, upper ups. And they said, well, we'd like to do something a bit, a bit less clinical. Mm -hmm. And I was a little crestfallen, but I understood. Um, and then I got a call from or an email, actually, when my husband and I were heading off to London for Christmas last year. Uh -huh. And it was uh, Kate Zimmerman, who's my editor and my publisher. She said, well, we would like to do an, a little bit of Ayurveda, which is a little bit of is the series that Barnes & Noble has to help 
the Western mind, particularly the American Western mind, mm-hmm. kind of get their head around complex co- conversations. Like they've got one called a little bit of yoga. They've got one called a little bit of meditation. Mm-hmm. One's coming out a little bit of mindfulness. So I'm number 18 in a series, I think, of 20 books that they've published. Uh-huh. And what I love about it is that it doesn't, it's not like one of the major four books that have already been written. The first one, of course, uh, fabulous books like Ayurvedic Healing by Dr. David Frawley, which mm-hmm. are really clinical for the clinical mind. Yeah. Um, so if you're a lay person, that's sort of off the, off the table. Then you've got the Four Dummies book, and the Four Dummies book makes you feel even more dumb than picking it up. <laughs> so, you, know, you want to make it in a, a non-pejorative title. Yeah, I'm with you. And then you've got the, the books that are a little flowery where they're more aspirational, where the, the author tells you to sit in the vat of sesame oil for four hours a day to feel really good, which is fantastic. I do that when I go to India, but it's not an everyday thing for me. No. And the last one, which I love, are cookbooks. And I love to cook, but I've got patients who live in houses that they've spent $100,000 in their kitchen and they're cooking out of a microwave and a hot pot. So how do we get people how do we this is my mantra in life how do i meet you where you are how can i meet you where you're at in your in your thought process yeah and this book is that this book is written like you and i having a conversation around my cadence to come to where i'm at this is about how ayurveda came to be in the west love it and it sounds like it just from my own personal experience it's it's being launched into an audience that is growing. I, I'm uh, absolutely flabbergasted by how just, just the understand. Well, I don't even, I'm not quite sure about the understanding. It's so in, in many ways, Ayurveda at this point feels like it's still kind of this, kind of this buzzword um, mm-hmm. in a lot of spheres, but I'm very excited about the fact that people are starting to ask more about it. What's your thinking about that? There's a lot of intellectual curiosity around it. And I think that, that when people, especially in America, where the primary focus is weight management, better sleep, better skin, looking younger. Yeah. Um, you know, there is no magic pill. And as much as someone tells you there's a magic pill or a magic smoothie or a magic powder, it yeah. doesn't exist. Um, especially after the fires where we are, I'm realizing people, their stress levels are so high that they have nowhere else to go. So most of my new patients have health conditions that have been kind of under the, under the surface for many, many years and are now presenting themselves. Wow. And they're not getting anywhere with their primary care doctor or a specialist. And they're going online and they're doing the research and they're trying to find out all about these different modalities and all yeah. these different situations that they're, they're in. What's the best way forward? And more and more I'm seeing that, that people are curing themselves, curing themselves of their ailments and diseases um, by using Ayurveda and yoga as part of their core therapies. So exciting. I'm so heartened, you know, by all of this and where it's going. Where do you think all of this is going? Well, it's, that's a great question. I mean, I'm always cautiously optimistic. Yeah. Um, when it comes to health and well-being, especially in this country. Um, you know, being a clinician, being a practitioner, even being a health coach, you have to understand you're taking on a lot of responsibility. Yeah. And it's important that we understand our scope of practice. I think that our intentions are good with working with our patients and clients. If you are a health coach, 
you did not go to school to be a diagnostician. That's mm -hmm. what doctors do. Yeah. You know, I go all the way up to saying the D word, but I use the word evaluation because I didn't go to Western medical school. I see that, and it's going to be interesting. I think it's going to be from top down to bottom up. I think as more and more physicians are educated on integrative therapies mm -hmm. and more and more patients are demanding more time and more holistic approaches, there has to be a marriage somewhere of Eastern and Western. Yeah. Um, in some cases, there's a woman in San Diego called Dr. Mimu Guarneri. Uh -huh. um, Dr. Guarneri was the first female cardiologist, I think in the 70s, to perform open heart surgery. Mm -hmm. And she is a complete badass. And we've taught at her center, the Pacific Pearl. I've, I've taught yoga, I've taught Ayurveda to Western physicians and have helped on the technical side with two of my colleagues, um, uh, Dr. Nancy Lonsdorf and Dr. Stuart Rothenberg. Uh -huh. But uh, Dr. Guarneri has created this Pacific Pearl Center, which is primary care around holistic and integrative health care. And she, well, Sonoma is basically built on that model where you've got someone who is an anchor tenant, you've got a physician who's seeing patients, mm -hmm. but can also recommend um, our services to their patients if it's a dietary issue or a lifestyle issue or acupuncture is needed or yoga therapy is needed. That's fantastic. That's, yeah. and I think Ayurveda just fits so well into, especially in the Western world, obviously, that yes. feels like it's exactly the sweet spot for Ayurveda. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Absolutely. So back to another more sort of personal question. What, what does Ayurveda look like in your life? <laughs> and you go, ask me that. <laughs> well, listen, it's all about balance for me. I mean, yeah. I, I Tell people, you know, I, with Ayurveda, there's always a way out. So in Ayurveda, they say, don't eat chocolate because it blocks your mama points. And the only yeah. way to unblock your mama points is getting a massage. Well, duh, eat the chocolate, get a massage, everybody wins. Yeah, I um, love it. I mean, I, I take Ayurveda uh, very seriously when I'm working with clients and patients, yeah. but I take it very unseriously or not seriously when I'm living in the living in the world that I live today. You know, I, I don't come to work uh, on a camel. I don't, I don't, you know, I, I have to drive to work, which can be a white knuckle experience. Sometimes mm. I don't wake up in a, uh, in a, in a very quiet and serene place. Sometimes if I've got my next door neighbor, you know, putting a new fence in. Yeah. So for me, it's finding rituals that I can do within an hour of waking up, um, that helped me get into the day. And, and those rituals helped set the day up for me properly. So, you know, in addition to scraping my tongue and brushing my teeth and, and doing some dry brushing or some gua sha or taking my ginger with hot water, I like to spend a few moments just meditating. Yeah. Um, I may oil pull depending on the season. Yeah. Um, I may contemplate my yoga practice. Um, and for more seasonal changes, you know, we, every quarter I do a seasonal cleanse. And the, or see, I don't like to use the, the cleanse word. I call it yeah. recalibration. Uh -huh. Like it. To get people out of winter into spring and out of spring into summer and out of summer into fall again. So it's teaching that life cycle and really living that life cycle. So I'll go a month without doing, uh, having a glass of wine, for example, because I just mm -hmm. like to recalibrate being someone who's pitta, you know, too much booze can, can be very challenging for you. Yeah. Um, 
And then for the serious stuff, you know, I go to India twice uh, every other year, rather, um, to get Panchakama services. And that's where I do all the heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. But it's important to walk the talk. You've got to practice what you preach. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really great approach. I think in my te my teachers in India, and it's, it's interesting too, just sort of being in this world, but um, in this sort of Ayurvedic world and seeing all the different um, approaches to applying it personally and, you know, with clients, but my teachers in India taught me to take this, take all of this stuff that you're learning and apply it where you are. So, you know, understand that there are going to be cultural differences, seasonal differences, all of these things. And kind of in many ways, think about how you can translate this. Because I think one of the things that scares people about Ayurveda um, is that, you know, as you were sort of saying very at the kind of the outset of our conversation, it, people think it's about curry or it's about, you know, all of these kind of Indian practices. Mm -hmm. But in my mind, it feels like if, if we're going to embrace kind of the, there's a bunch of universal truths kind of built into it. And if we're going to embrace it, mm -hmm. it feels like we need to find a way of translating it into our modern lives and to, in order to kind of not only let it in, but also have it help us. Well, you've actually nailed what I love when I say to my, t my, my, my patients and clients, teach what your teacher taught you through your own experience. Yeah. Because you are, you are that... Acharya, you are that teacher, you are that Vajra, you know, you, if you've had any major, major medical conditions in your life and you've come through them using Ayurveda or any integrative medical practice, guess what? You've become a subject matter expert. Mm. You haven't become a clinician, you haven't become a, a, a physician, but you now know how to get someone better from those depths. Yeah. So that, anyone who's listening to this, if that's what their desire is, use that health crisis that you've gone through hmm. you are the teacher teach what your teacher taught you through your own experience yeah that's beautiful that's great so I, okay so Deacon, i've just got one more question for you this has been so fabulous hearing your story oh my goodness i thought my story was kind of winding and, and uh you know and varied and i just love all of the stuff that you've been through and imagining and i can hear it too just in the conversation how it's all contributed to kind of who you are and how you think and how you see and relate to the world. And I think my question for you is what is all of this work, like the, the work with people and the work with yourself, what is it, what has it really taught you about humanity and about yourself as well? You know, <clears throat> these past couple of years in our world history have been really challenging where we are looking at each other's differences rather than each other's similarities. Mm. Uh, and it, it, it's now gone beyond color of our skin, yeah. gender, or sexual orientation. It's become more pervasive. And, you know, if you see someone wearing a red baseball cap in the States, you can pretty much imagine which where they, they're, they're swinging with their, their vote. Everything's become so divisive, yet we've forgotten the most fundamental rule of the universe. Mm. is that we're all breathing the same air. Yeah. We're all on the same planet. You know, we're breathing the air of our ancestors, our enemies, our friends, our loved ones. And if that isn't a place to start thinking really deeply about how interconnected we all are, then I don't know 
how we're going to come out of all of this. Mm. I think fundamentally we've lost the ability of conversation and debate. Everything has been shut down. Everybody is triggered. People aren't willing to have conversations. And when it comes to our healthcare, we're so confused about something so challenging as understanding what the Pfizer commercial or the AstraZeneca commercial is telling us. Yes, I've got those symptoms. Well, you've got those symptoms because you don't have a community anymore. You're online and you're trolling people and you're telling people whatever your story is online. It's not mm-hmm. a narrative. We've got to come back to our communities. And I think by inviting people to take a good, hard look at what it feels like to be well, what does that sense of well-being mean? It doesn't mean going to the spa all the time. You can be with friends and family and even having a conversation with a fellow, a fellow colleague and a friend like we're having now. You realize that the work that you're doing means so much more than just coming in and going through the grind and helping people feel better because there really isn't a grind. We're all in this together. Oh my goodness. I am so, so thankful to you for your time. This has been wonderful, really has. I'm going to be living off of this conversation for, for weeks to come. Um, not just because I so agree with everything that you've said, but because it's just been truly inspiring. So thanks so much. I really appreciate it. it the pleasure is all mine. I'm so glad we finally got to chat. I mean, just being, being uh, social media friends, I, just, I feel like um, I just picked up where I left off with an old friend. It's been fabulous speaking with you, Chara. Thank you. What a life, huh? So I hope you enjoyed what Deacon had to share and his ultimate message of the importance of something that it seems like we're seeing and feeling less and less of these days, and that is connection. You know, what I love most is that all that he's learned and all that he teaches comes straight from his his own painful and joyful experiences. I'm also a really big fan of his practical approach to applying the tools of yoga and of Ayurveda in his modern life and the integrity that he lives and shares, the integrity with which he lives and shares this stuff like every day in his community. So Deacon's book is out now, A Little Bit of Ayurveda, and it's available online, as he mentioned. And I think he's actually organizing a book tour as well. So you can check out his website and the details with that will be in the show notes for dates and locations. And so as you may or may not know, I also have a book out. It came out last year and the focus is providing some insights and some guidance into living and eating in accordance with the cycles of the natural world. In other words, how to live in a seasonal way and stay balanced throughout the seasons. The book is called Eat Like You Love Yourself. And our next podcast episode is a conversation that Maria and I had around what Ayurvedic eating looks and feels like and even what it's good for. So I hope that you choose to join us for that one. Until then, namaste.